executive producer Isaac Saul. This is Tangle. Hey everybody, and welcome to the Tangle Podcast. Today, we are sitting down with Youssef Munayer. Youssef is a Palestinian-American writer and political analyst who's the head of the Palestine-Israel program at the Arab Center in Washington, D.C. His focus is on Israeli-Palestinian issues, U.S. policy toward Israel and Palestine, and regional dynamics that are affected by or impact them. He's also directed the Jerusalem Fund and Palestine Center, a D.C.-based center focused on Palestine policy. Youssef is, uh, without question, one of my most followed voices among people who write or talk about the issues of Israel and Palestine. He has been on this podcast before, a couple of years ago in, in 2021, during one of the last spates of violence. He was one of the first people I called to come on. So I was really excited to speak with him again. It goes without saying that uh, him and I don't agree on everything. And this interview is not about that. It is about giving him an opportunity to share his perspective and to put to our listeners his views on what is happening, uh, especially because they differ from my own and because you so often get my voice and my perspective about what is happening right now. So I was really thrilled to bring him on. As always, it was a super fascinating conversation where I learned a lot and had some of my views challenged and changed and shifted in certain ways. And I hope you guys enjoy it too. So without further ado, here it is. Yusuf Munayer, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Sure. Good to be with you. First, I'd like to start maybe just a little human to human here. How how are you doing? How are you holding up? I imagine this is um, a really difficult moment in time. Yeah, I mean it's extremely difficult. Um, you know the 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 situation on the ground. I think is is difficult for anybody to kind of watch. Um, and uh, for for many of us who have um, family members who are. Um, you know, on on the ground under bombs, um, it, it becomes increasingly more difficult. Um, nobody is okay, even if they're alive during this time. Um, everybody is profoundly impacted uh, by this, um, and I think uh, you know I, I speak for um, many many people when I say uh, we just wanted to see it come to an immediate end. Um, so that's more or less, I think, how a lot of us are doing right now. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're seeing? How would you describe in your words, I guess, the current situation of this quote-unquote military operation in Gaza and also what you're seeing in the West Bank right now? What's, what's your perspective and description of, of what's happening? Yeah, I mean, in 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 some ways, what we're seeing is new because of the level uh, of spectacular violence uh, that we are seeing. Um, the sheer number of people who are being killed, the amount of destruction that we are seeing, um, is unprecedented. Um, the mass displacement um, and the level of of cruelty. 
I think is something that's hard to find um, hard to find an analogy for in in, in the history of, of um, Israeli Palestinian interaction, and that you know that's that's saying a lot. Um, at the same time, there's a lot that's not new here, um, and I look at what we are seeing today and have seen over the last few months as just the most recent episode within a situation where um, there is a lack of freedom and justice. Uh, and until I think those things are fundamentally addressed, this is this is stuff that we're going to continue to see. Um, and sometimes it might take more um, horrific forms than others. Um, and we're watching, as I said, a truly horrific version of this now. Um, but it is part of a system. It's part of a system that did not start on October 7th, long predated it, and will most likely exist after this war is over, uh, which I think is uh, probably the most, most important piece to, to focus on. And I think without challenging that system, um, we're likely to find ourselves watching future versions of this. You know, I've been critical of, I think, especially how far this particular bombardment and ground invasion and military response from Israel has gone. And I've written a little bit about this in my newsletter. And one of the things I hear very often from, I think, a lot of people who are maybe more ardently on the the pro-Israel side is, well, what should Israel have done? What what are what were their options then in response to the October seventh attack? And I have different kinds of answers for that. One of which I think is just there were no good options on the table, and this is a particularly bad one. But I'm curious how you would answer that question or respond to that framework. I mean, you know, you could wave a magic wand and have some influence on what happens on October 8th. What's your guidance? How do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few ways um, to to respond to that. Um, you know, um, first of all, I think there's no, there's no situation that justifies the mass killing of, of innocent civilians. And we should make no mistake, this is what we are seeing in Gaza. Um, thousands of people, thousands of children who had absolutely nothing to do uh, with the events of October 7th uh, are being killed in what is called uh, an act of defense against it. Um, and that's, that's not justifiable in any, in any circumstances. Um, at the same time, though, you, know, you do hear people attempting to justify this war by raising the very point that you did. What is Israel supposed to do? You, know, you have to sort of sympathize with this impossible predicament that Israel is in. I think there's a couple, I think there's a couple of responses to that. Um, first, um, we know that this is not the only way that Israel can defend itself because Israel was capable of defending itself on October 7th, but failed to do that for a number of reasons. Uh, what happened on October 7th was not because um, Hamas was somehow militarily superior to Israel, uh, was somehow, uh, you know, somehow had more resources, more guns than Israel, or had superior intelligence. Um, 
It was made possible by a failure of Israeli intelligence and security apparatus, right? So there is clearly a way to prevent against another attack like that without having to do what Israel is doing in the Gaza Strip. What it is seeking to do now in the Gaza Strip is not defense. It's some form of accountability, right, in the, in the, in the most uh, uh, generous sort of um, uh, description of it, uh, against sort of the key uh, architects behind uh, October 7th. Uh, but it's not it's not defense. And I think it's important to separate those two things. Um, I would also say that there are people who look at the situation in Gaza and say, like, well, you know, if you look at it from the Israeli perspective, this is an impossible situation. What are you supposed to do? There is this group that wants to come and attack you, and they have a base here in Gaza. And how else are we supposed to respond, right? But I think we need to ask ourselves, how did this happen? How do you get into a place where there is a group like this that controls this territory um, and is able to develop the capabilities uh, to launch these kinds of attacks, right? And the reason we are in this place um, is because Israel created a sort of exceptional status in Gaza that is unique, right? There is an occupation, right, in Gaza. And in most normal circumstances where there is an occupation, the occupier, in this case Israel, um, has security perks that it gets in the role of being an occupier, uh, while also having responsibilities towards the population it occupies. And this is supposed to be the, the way that international law and the expectations of occupation internationally work. But the situation that was created in Gaza by the Israelis with their um, disengagement in 2005 created a situation where Israel wanted to retain the right to have the security perks of occupation without the responsibilities of governance or to the people it was supposed to protect in Gaza. And so this, this, this predicament, right, that people are being asked to sympathize with, uh, is also a creation of decisions that the Israeli government made for self-interested reasons. And we could go, we could go into all of that and sort of the logic behind the disengagement and all of those kinds of things. But, but if we are being asked to appreciate this predicament, we have to also understand the conditions that, that uh, brought it about. It obviously did not emerge on October 7th, right? This is, there's a, a long history um, to this and including multiple episodes of wars on Gaza uh, that predate uh, this most recent war. One of the kind of wrinkles, I guess, to that answer that I think has become sort of front and center in the conversation, at least in my circles over the last week or two, is the role in which Israel played in elevating Hamas and and kind of giving Hamas more power. Um, the New York Times had some reporting about you know, funding from Israel that was sort of being passed through Qatar to Hamas. And there's been a lot of discussion about these sort of declassified conversations where leaders like Benjamin Netanyahu have been quoted as saying, you know, that the tension between Palestinian leadership in the West Bank and Gaza, Hamas and the Palestinian Authority is actually beneficial for Israel's goal of preventing a Palestinian state from existing. Curious if you could talk a little bit 
about your view on that, on on Israel's role in putting Hamas into a position where it has power in Gaza. And, you know, I guess how you view that general dynamic. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is, again, one of those things that's that's not new when it comes to the 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 sort of the domination of Palestinians, whether by um, Israel and this most recent Israeli government or previous Israeli governments, or, you know, going back to the British mandate, this sort of principle of of divide and rule has long been practiced against Palestinians um, by those in power over them. Um, and also, of course, not just among Palestinians. Like, this is just a classical tactic of colonial powers throughout history. Um, and, you know, I think that um, the, the, the state of Israel, uh, and, and you, can, you can look at the way that this was discussed at the, the time by the Sharon government, who sort of made the, the decision to, quote-unquote, disengage from Gaza in 2005, um, you know, the, the, the way that they saw it was as an opportunity to kind of freeze any obligations that they had towards making peace with the Palestinians. And, you know, at that time, it wasn't about necessarily Hamas and Fatah, right? Um, it was about keeping the West Bank and Gaza as separate entities um, and, and, and keeping them under different status, right? Um, and the idea here was that if, 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 Gaza was separated from the West Bank, uh, and the Palestinians were divided. Um, and you you could say, well, we have nobody to talk to. There's no Palestinian partner to talk to. Then you really can't be expected to make concessions for peace, right? You need to have a partner to make concessions to. And if you don't have a partner, what's the point of having this conversation? Um, and so, you know, Israel's policy towards Gaza, which which developed into a policy towards Hamas in Gaza um, was was fit into this self-interested argument about putting off a peace agreement and perpetuating occupation and the expansion of settlements in the West Bank. Um, and, uh, you know, again, this is not limited to this most recent Israeli government. I, obviously, Netanyahu has gotten a lot of attention and a lot of flack specifically for his um, you know, policy towards Hamas in, in, in Gaza. But this is something we see um, from this Netanyahu government, from previous Netanyahu governments, and from non-Netanyahu governments as well, including, you know, you could look back and see statements from figures that are today in the opposition to Netanyahu supporting this sort of divide and rule strategy to put off, right, the, um, uh, the pressure uh, for greater concessions towards the, the Palestinians. Um, and so when I talk about, you know, this moment being the result of a system that's in place, this is that system, right? It's a system of unending apartheid, an absence of peace and justice. Um, and, you know, there might be people like Netanyahu and others that see the maintenance of the system, the continuance of the system as one that comes with costs from time to time, but ultimately more benefits for Israel and for the Israeli project. Uh, and therefore see it as preferable, right? Um, but I think there are a lot of others who are paying the costs, of course, of this, who see it, who see it differently. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. One of the things that made me reach out to you in the last week was this poll that you posted on Twitter. It was a, 
a thread you posted about some recent polling from Gaza and the West Bank and Israel of Palestinians. Uh, There's a lot, I think, to unpack in it, but I'm curious if maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit about what, what we saw in the poll and what your takeaways from it were. Yeah, and there really is a lot, and there's not, and, and we're not going to be able to capture it in this conversation. And I would encourage listeners to actually go seek out the poll um, and read through the results and the details because it is it is important. Um, you know, I was looking forward to seeing this poll. I honestly did not know when to expect it because this is part of a series of polls that are done of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, and obviously the situation in Gaza right now is so desperate and so dangerous that it's it's hard to do public opinion polling in these kinds of conditions. Um, but the, the, the outfit managed to get it done during the period of the truce, the very brief, you know, six or seven day truce in this war uh, that, uh, that took place um, uh, recently uh, so that they could produce some of these uh, results. And, you know, I have to say, I wasn't super surprised uh, by the results uh, that we saw. Um, some of the key takeaways, I mean, support for Hamas has gone through the roof. Um, uh, you know, it's, it, it was, uh, a party that had support previously, um, but now has far, uh, greater, uh, support. Um, and I think what's important to note here is that, you know, more than just support for Hamas, if you look at the actual numbers, um, Palestinians support this idea of, uh, armed struggle, uh, and using arms to confront, uh, Israel, um, and support for that strategy has also gone up significantly. And the number of people who support that strategy, the percentage of respondents, are greater than the number of people who support Hamas. And so uh, sort of confidence in this strategy or support for this strategy does, the, does not simply correspond with an ideological uh, political preference, right? Um, it's a strategic uh, choice that uh, transcends sort of ideological preferences. Um, which I think is is important. Um, you know, I'm not surprised by this because historically, and there's there's historical evidence in in these in these polls over time that that shows this. In moments like this, that happens. Um, uh, however, coming into this, we were at a point already where support for armed uh, struggle was significantly high. Um, and uh, now it's it's of course gotten much higher. I think one of the um, the key reasons this is important, two reasons this is very important. Um, first, because, you know, the uh, uh, Israeli sort of strategy, or at least the stated Israeli strategy, is that, you know, they are doing this to weaken Hamas and eliminate Hamas. And their their order of operations that they put forward is to get to peace, first you have to get rid of Hamas, right? And the way you do that is by doing what we're doing in Gaza. This is sort of their um, theory of change, right? Um, but the, the evidence that we, we have now pretty clearly is that this is not doing that at all. Uh, in fact, what it's doing is quite the opposite, right? Uh, which, you know, for anyone who understands um, the Palestinian experience, no one is going to be um, surprised uh, by this at all. Um, you know, I don't think anybody has ever succeeded in making their neighbors like them by force um, and by bombing. It usually doesn't work like that, right? Um, so, uh, it's not surprising to see these results in Palestinian public opinion. The other reason I think it's really important, not just because it tells us something about, you know, uh, Israeli strategy in, in Gaza, 
but really tells us something about sort of um, the the international community's uh, handling of of Israel Palestine for years um, and the the failure to take into account what Palestinians think, right? Um, and you see from this poll, one of the things that was quite striking was that the the vast majority of Palestinians uh, want Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, to resign, right? I think something like 11% uh, are the ones saying that he should uh, sort of stick around, 11%. And this is the man, of course, that, that Joe Biden says should take control of Gaza after the war, right? And, you know, I think... Um, you know, there's there's a lot of things we can say about the Biden administration's handling of this, um, but this problem is not unique to the Biden administration. Uh, this um, uh, you know approach of basically trying to shape Palestinians into a a mold that suits both American and Israeli interests, but doesn't take into account Palestinian views, is something that has been a cornerstone of American policy on Israel and Palestine for a long, long time, right? Um, and it doesn't work. Um, and, you know, I think part of what we're seeing today is a product of that, is a product of that failure. So, you know, we need to look this stuff in the face. And that's not easy to do because it it requires acknowledging that the parties are much further apart than we'd like to acknowledge, right? Um, and, you know, it's much easier to go back to this boilerplate language about a two-state solution. Um, but the Israelis don't support that right now. There isn't Palestinian confidence in this right now. And the primary Palestinian voice that's pushing for that has about 11% support among Palestinians, right? And so you need to meet people where they are, right? And, and, and there's no shortcuts to that. Um, and shortcuts bring us to where we are today. Um, so, you know, I, uh, people are looking for easy answers to this. There aren't any. Right. But that doesn't mean uh, that, you know, there are ways around it uh, or that by ignoring it, it's going to go away uh, or that uh, we won't see major eruptions uh, of violence if we if we do ignore it. Yeah, I think that's a really nice segue kind of into the second part of this conversation I want to have, which is the I guess the the look ahead, the what's next part of this. So. You raise, I think the most important points kind of, you know, looking to the horizon about what's coming, which is everything that's happening right now is increasing the popularity of Hamas as a political organization. It's damaging faith in Israel or the Palestinian Authority or the United States as a legitimate partner to the the Palestinian cause. Uh, and in the United States, in Israel's case, I think it's um, kind of shocking that it could have gotten worse based on what the polling had shown beforehand, but it seems to be. So I'm, I'm interested to hear how you sort of view Hamas and all this as a political organization. Can can peace exist with them as a leadership group in Gaza? And how do we kind of navigate, you know, picking up the pieces whenever this war does end with them clearly in control and with, you know, rising popularity, as you know? Yeah, I mean, again, this goes back to what I was talking about previously. Like you, you know, the United States and their relationship with Israel. Uh, you know, the United States recognizes Israel as a sovereign and an independent nation, and because of that, um, we don't we don't tell the Israelis who to elect. They don't tell us who to elect. Uh, 
They elect their leaders. We have to deal with them. We may not like them. We not may not like the choices that they make. The choices that they make may not advance the policies or the visions that the United States sees. Nonetheless, we have to deal with them. We don't treat the Palestinians the same way, right? Because we simply don't see them as a people who have self-determination and sovereignty and should be able to choose their leaders. That has to change. Um, obviously, Hamas does not fit into the stated vision uh, of the United States. It doesn't fit into the interests of Israel. They're there. Uh, and um, whether we like that or not, Ignoring them doesn't make them go away, right? Nor does it make it any easier to get to some sort of comprehensive agreement if that is in fact the goal, right? Um, and at the same time, there are plenty of people on the Israeli side that don't fit within that vision, right? Including the entire government of Israel right now, not just one faction, but the entire government of Israel is not on board with a Palestinian state with a two-state solution or, or with, with any of that, right? Um, so, you know, we can play this game of it's too hard, the cards are not right, the leaders are not there, uh, they're too weak, uh, they're uh, not, uh, you know, they're not bold enough, they're not willing to make sacrifices. We can, we can say all of that and use that as an excuse to either ignore the situation or just continue with the status quo of supporting Israel no matter what it does, right? That hasn't worked, right? That hasn't worked. So we, we, I think we need an approach that first and foremost looks inward, you know, at U.S. policy and says, what's gone wrong and how do we fix those things, right? This is not a normal moment in the Middle East or a normal moment in Israeli-Palestinian history. This is a major moment and, and war is a failure. And this is a spectacular war and a spectacular failure, right? Um, and this is a region where Israel and the United States have a tremendous amount of influence and have been shaping policy and outcomes for a really long time. We need to think about how this happened, right? And how we got here and what we need to change. A couple of weeks before this happened, maybe even 10 days before this happened, our national security advisor, right? Jake Sullivan was giving an interview uh, before October 7th where he said, um, you know, the Middle East is more calm and stable today than it's ever been. And I have to spend less time on conflict in that region than any of my predecessors going back to 9-11. Okay. I think this just shows you how out of touch American policy has been with the currents in the region. Right. And that's, you know, that's a product of willful choices. We need to re-examine some of those before we're really in a position to say, or, or to articulate, you know, a, a vision for the future for Israelis and Palestinians. On that piece, I would just say, look, you know, uh, I don't think Israelis or Palestinians are going anywhere. Certainly not anytime soon. Um, we we both live in this space. We both want to live in this space. Um, and the only way you get to peaceful coexistence is through a just and agreed upon set of rules that people abide by. Um, that's that's how it works. Um, and if any party thinks they're above the rules, or if any party thinks the law doesn't apply to them. Um, then you have a system of injustice that just perpetuates violence, right? That's what we need to to, to break out of. Um, and if you know the two state model has failed, I believe it has, and I believe I believe it has for a long time. The answer cannot be, well, we just got to stick with the status quo, right? Because we've seen the cost of that. We have to work for different alternatives and. 
prioritize that with urgency. Um, and, and that's the piece that we have not seen so far, right? I think this administration, you know, in their language and in their, and in their priorities has effectively acknowledged that, you know, the two state solution, um, is a vision at best, right? Um, and not something that we're anywhere close to. Um, but that's sim- it's simply not enough to just, uh, you know, um, uh, to just resign to that. Right. Um, especially when we are, we, when I say we, I mean, the United States are so deeply involved in supporting this system of injustice. We'll be right back after this quick break. So I guess sort of on that note, I mean, take the two-state solution off the table then. What's a realistic, you know, difficult answer proposal that you feel like is possible in the future, I guess is is 1A. And 1B is, you know, can Hamas as a leadership group in Gaza be part of that, I guess. I mean, and, you know, showing my cards here, I I personally really struggle with a sort of flattening of Hamas and the Israeli government as being on the same footing. And, you know, I look at the way everybody's postured right now, and, and I see, you know, the Israeli government just feeling like there's absolutely no way that they can deal with a group who committed the acts they committed. And I see the people standing in the rubble in Gaza saying there's no way they'll ever be able to deal with, you know, a group who committed this kind of military incursion in in Gaza and, and all the destruction that's been wrought. So, yeah, I, I suppose I'm interested in what, what you see as an alternative to the two-state solution. And then also that second piece, which is can, can Hamas be a group that maybe evolves in a way politically that leads, you know, with some sort of diplomacy to get to that solution um, rather than like the, the, the violent uprising, I guess. Yeah. I mean, look, I think, I think all political actors can evolve over time. Like, I don't think there's any, any political actor that, um, you know, can, can never evolve um, if conditions change over time. Um, So uh, I, you know, I I would not look at any one group as a monolith or a permanent fixture in their in their positions, Israeli or Palestinian. Um, uh, You know, that being said, I I I do want to say something about this idea about the you know just the tremendous amount of bloodshed making people think that there's just no way, right? There's there's just no way. Um, A lot of times in in mass conflict situations that have been going on for a long time, sometimes it is the tremendous amount of bloodshed that makes people look at the other side and say, there has to be another way. Um, that that th- we cannot just keep doing this, right? Um, and right now, the answers that we are being given is that there's no alternative to this, right? That we have to keep doing this. And, and you know, if more Palestinians support Hamas, well, that just means that Israel has to kill more Palestinians. I mean, this is insanity. Right. At, at, at some point, voices of conscience need to be able to say, um, there's been enough bloodshed. There's been enough bloodshed. I don't care who's on the other side. There, there has to be a way out of this. Right. 
Um, and if we, if we wait to do that until the next round, it'll be more difficult the next round, right? And part of the reason it's as difficult as it is today is because we've waited to do that previously, right? Um, and obviously, it's not easy. You know, there's there, uh, there's no Palestinian in in Gaza that has seen what they've seen that has an appetite for um, you know thinking about living with Israelis after that, right? Um, but at the same time, as I said, Israelis and Palestinians aren't go aren't going anywhere. And the answer we we simply cannot accept that the answer is a return to the October sixth status quo, right? There's no there there can't be a going going back to that. The going back to that 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 was also violent. Right, that was also unacceptable. So, you know, I think if we if we really want to see an end to this, there needs to be a radical shift, right? A radical shift away from the failed policies of the past. Um, and you know, in 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 my view, and I've 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 written about this. Others have written about this uh, because I believe that Israelis and Palestinians are not going anywhere anytime soon, and because I believe that injustice is a driver of violence. We need to build systems of justice, right? We need equality before the law. Um, we need the enfranchisement of all people, right? I mean, these, you know, these are the the basic things that create systems where grievances can be redressed through legitimate processes and not through violence, right? That's that's why you see less violence in democracies than in, in non-democracies, because those processes exist. Here they don't. We have a system of military occupation, discrimination, and so on. And so long as that continues, um, you, you're, you're going to have eruptions of violence. So, like, those are the choices before us. You know, I've been thinking a lot about Jimmy Carter in the last couple of months. Uh, his, um, his wife died recently, and I know he's in difficult shape as well. And he wrote years ago, you know, that Israel is facing this choice between peace and apartheid, Right. Um, and you know, I think the, the Israeli government has really gone down the route of doubling down on apartheid. And we heard yesterday, the Israeli ambassador to the United Kingdom basically saying, you know, there can never be a Palestinian state, but also, you know, Palestinians are not going to have a right to vote. So basically apartheid is their answer, right? In perpetuity. Um, what I worry about is that there are Israelis today who are looking at this as a, as another binary choice, uh, between apartheid or genocide as the options that they face. Um, and there needs to be people who communicate to those folks that that's simply not acceptable, right? That there has to be a different alternative. Um, and it would make sense for that voice to come from Washington, uh, but we haven't, we haven't seen the political courage within our own leaders to do that either. I, one of the things that I just noticed about the coverage, especially in the West around this issue. And even in our conversation right now is there's always a really central focus on these kind of three players, the Palestinian movement, the Palestinian territories, and political leaders, Israel and the United States. I'm curious if you could maybe talk a little bit about how you view the, the kind of Arab states' role in this, specifically maybe, you know, Egypt or Jordan. I, I know there was sort of a brief spurt of news coverage around the fact that Egypt was maintaining this blockade as well on Gaza and not letting um, refugees through. H how do you view them and their relationship to the, the Palestinian cause right now? And what role, if any, do you think they should have in kind of changing this paradigm that you're talking about? 
Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I think to understand their behavior, the most important thing to keep in mind is that yes, these are um, states in the region that are next door. They're impacted by the geopolitical situation. Um, they are ethnic kin of Palestinian Arabs. That's obviously very important. But also, it's really important to understand that these are authoritarian regimes, uh, which are themselves threatened by the prospect of democracy. Um, and they are part of a regional security architecture uh, where Israel is central, uh, where American security assistance is central. Um, and they too are threatened by the prospect of democratic systems emerging between Israel and Palestine. Uh, and so on the one hand, they deal with the domestic turbulence uh, anytime something like this happens because people in their countries are outraged at what is taking place in Gaza and elsewhere in Palestine and their government's lack of you know, support. Uh, and, and because many of these countries have normalized ties with Israel, they see their governments as, you know, being complicit in this. As you know, you know, Egypt has a role um, in, uh, in, in, in Gaza and at, at the Rafah uh, crossing and so on. Um, uh, and they uh, also understand that democratization um, presents risks to their regimes themselves. So they have, you know, they have a balancing act that they are sort of trying to maintain um, that doesn't exactly lend to solving this problem either, right? Um, but that's not something that is separate from American interests or Israeli interests, because these are all part of a sort of common collaborative when it comes to uh, a security setup in the region. So... This is uh, probably one of the the least important things we're going to discuss today. But but before we get out of here, I wanted to give you a chance to share your thoughts on some of the Rashida Tlaib controversy around the expression from the river to the sea. And the reason I want to do that is because obviously with Tangle and, and my work, we are very explicitly trying to share a wide range of views on various topics. And I had an opportunity to kind of write a little bit about this just from my own personal perspective, which I know differs from yours, and just expressed my feeling and sentiment that, you know, when I hear from the river to the sea, I kind of have visions of more militant, extreme, violent Palestinian liberation movements. And it it sort of makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up a bit. And I've seen some of your writing about this particular issue. And I thought it'd be important to kind of give you an opportunity to share your perspective and, and speak to that a little bit. So uh, I'd love to hear you sort of talk about how you view, you know, the historical context of of that chant and expression and, and why you might disagree with that sort of perspective that I've articulated in the past. Yeah, well, I appreciate the opportunity to do that. I mean, look, I think uh, and the way the way you the way you put it was um, uh, it, to me, I think, very interesting. And you know, I, I think it's important to ask why it makes you uncomfortable. You know, uh, and there were a lot of folks who, in response to the Black Lives Matter movement, movement, um, heard in that chant something that made them uncomfortable. Uh, and the first thing that they thought of is, well, 
what do you mean black lives matter? Don't all lives matter? Doesn't my life matter? Right? And we heard what they were saying through our ears the way we wanted to hear it and with our own interests in mind, uh, which I don't think is an abnormal reaction. Um, but the whole point of these things is to make people uh, uncomfortable, to be provocative, and to make people think. Um, and for Palestinians, you know, when we say from the river to the sea, we're, we're talking about a space, right? A physical space where we're from, right? And I think what's interesting is that when people hear Palestinians say, hey, this is our home, one of the things that they may hear is, this is our home alone, right? Um, and it's a choice to hear that that way. And I think it's worth asking why you hear it that way, right? Um, you know, when, when, when we talk about the land between the river and the sea, that's, that's just where we're from, right? I mean, and for us to be free in our homeland, that's the goal, you know? So it's as, it's as transparent as you can be about what it is that we see, right? And, you know, when, when protesters say Black Lives Matter, that's not because they want to see white lives matter less, right? That's because they want to see people recognize that Black lives have not mattered. And for Palestinians, you know, the reality is that between the river and the sea, there are millions of Palestinians who are not free, right? And, um, and there are millions of Israelis who are. Uh, and that's that's the fundamental difference. That's what people are working to to change that system of uh, of inequality. So, I mean, I think I wanted to say that point, which in, which sort of explains what this is about. But I want to also call out something else that's going on, and that's you know this policing of speech and expression um, that we are seeing now in overdrive targeting Palestinians or those who support the rights of Palestinians, not just in the United States, but really around the world. We're seeing, you know, protests being shut down because of chance. We're seeing student groups being shut down. We're seeing people being fired from their jobs for posting things on social media. I mean, this is a, a hysterical, repressive climate that has been building for some time. And it's a product of an effort to silence dissent against Israeli policies in the West specifically because Israel relies on Western support to maintain what it's doing to Palestinians. And I think this is a, a cycle that is going to escalate over time. Uh, we're going to see greater Israeli repression of Palestinians on the ground, leading to greater outrage in the West over Western support for that oppression. And in turn, we're going to see increased efforts to try to repress that activism. Um, and in doing so, I think the Israeli state only reinforces this image of heavy-handedness, right, um, which doesn't really sell well among Western publics. Um, and it's, it's, it's getting beyond absurd now. You know, the other day you had um, a, a, a very well-known Jewish uh, writer for The New Yorker who was writing about... Um, Holocaust memory and and the horrors that are taking place in in Gaza for the New Yorker, um, who uh, had a a prize named after Hannah Arendt uh, rescinded um, uh, in Germany uh, because of what uh, she was writing. Right, so you had a, a a Jewish writer writing about the abuse of state power, right, um, and and repression and horrific state violence. 
being silenced by by Germans, right? Um, in in you know, in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. I mean, it's 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 the, the the height of absurdity that we're talking about now. But that's where the conversation is, and we got here because trying to defend a system of apartheid in the West requires being absurd. Youssef Munayer, I appreciate you giving us so much of your time today. If people want to keep up with some of your work, where's the best place for them to do that? I mean, I probably spend most of my time putting stuff out on, on Twitter related to this, and you could find me at Yusuf Munayer uh, on Twitter or X or whatever it's called these days. <laughs> we'll be sure to link to it. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Our podcast is written by me, Isaac Saul, and edited and engineered by John Wall. The script is edited by our managing editor, Ari Weitzman, Will Kaback, Bailey Saul, and Sean Brady. The logo for our podcast was designed by Magdalena Bakova, who is also our social media manager. Music for the podcast was produced by Diet75. And if you're looking for more from Tangle, please go to retangle.com and check out our website. <laughs> <laughs>